Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Christopher Harvey with us. And the problem with Christopher Harvey is when you get his research note, you go, damn, because there's always one or two sentences in it that you got to find that are absolutely brilliant. Christopher Harvey with Wells Fargo, you absolutely nail the under ownership of Apple Computer. Explain to our audience on radio and TV, how is it possible Apple is under owned? Uh, that's the great question. It's something we've been monitoring for about two years now. And it, we've been scratching our head why PMs really have been underweight Apple or institutional PMs have been underweight Apple. We'd walk into an office, we'd talk about the underweight and PM, whether it was a growth or a core PM would say, I don't care. And we'd say, but you should. And they would just say, I don't care. Apple's not a growth stock, not my portfolio. Let's move on. And now a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, how did Apple get to where it is at this point in time? And that's one of the reasons why we think it continues to grind higher. What is the behavior of active managers as they end a quarter end, whether it's September 30 or 1231, uh, 20? Are they, is this the correct word? Are they forced to buy these high-flying techs? Well, I don't know if they're forced, but you do see or you do hear a lot of the risk PMs. It's not risk PMs, but risk managers knocking on the door and saying, we, you told me two months ago, you told me three months ago, you were going to tighten this up. You, you told me that Apple was going to pull back. It hasn't. We need to do something now. And, and the other thing is you have cash laying on the balance sheet or you have cash laying around in, in the portfolio. You have to start equitizing that because what's happening is relative performance is beginning to decay. And it's been a pretty good year for a lot of the managers. So they want to keep that from happening. There's a conflation going on between under ownership of Apple and under ownership more broadly of U.S. stocks. Can we make that conflation? Can we say that the reluctance to own more Apple shows the reluctance to have a heavier overweight in U.S. stocks? Well, there, there's a couple things going on right now. So I, I think what's ha one of the things that's happening is we're seeing this move too passive, right? So people are starting to get more Apple into their portfolio. They're just doing it a different way. The PMs, to a degree, are forced, but, but the asset owners aren't waiting around for them to make that move. The other thing, to, to your point, is we've seen this rally. We've talked about a summertime meltdown of 10 10% plus. We're there. And people have been brought kicking and screaming to this thing. And, and now, as we look at, at this thing, we're not saying, okay, it's time to get off. It's time to leave the party just yet. We think a lot of the good news is priced in, but this is a time where people get squeezed in. This is a time where funny things do happen. I'm really confused, Chris. We were talking three weeks ago, four weeks ago, with economist after economist after stock trader who said, if we don't get a second round of fiscal support, we will see stock prices go down. They are at new record highs. Why is this happening? Well, I, I think that's why they're economists and not portfolio managers or equity strategists. Uh, the, the second thing that we're seeing, what we've been saying is the reason for the run-up is things are getting less bad, and they continue to get less bad. Anecdotally, when I drive around, there are more people on the road. When I walk around, there are more people in restaurants. So the economy is slowly grinding higher. You still have basically 0% interest rates. You have credit spreads that have tightened dramatically. You have funding widely available, and you're still having pretty good reports from many, many companies. So I think that's really what's going on. And the belief is that ultimately something will get done. 
Chris, I want to pin you down on a percent move up in SPX. Michael Purvis is modeling under 7% lift in SPX. How do you feel? Wells Fargo, can you quantify single digit or dare I say double digit up for the market? So our price target, so we've been one of the more aggressive people off the bottom. We've had one of the higher price targets, but we're actually through our price target at this point in time. Our price target is 33.88. But when we got there, we didn't say, okay, okay, we're right. The market's wrong. The market's going to fall apart. What we said is there's plenty of reasons for this market to continue. Now what we're saying is we're looking less about market direction and more about constituents in the portfolio. What you want to own, that you want to rotate. And our thought is you want to move down smaller cap. You want to look for companies that have COVID beta, that have better comps in fourth quarter of next year, excuse me, first quarter of next year and second quarter of next year. In addition to that, you want more economic sensitivity because we do think the economy will continue to grind higher. We welcome all of you this morning on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, particularly across Sirius XM in the path of Hurricane Laura right now beneath Shreveport, uh, Louisiana. It will go up and to the right, if you will. And we say good morning to all of you preparing for Hurricane Laura. Lisa, what I find so interesting about the Thursday is the event structure is so predictable to the president's speech tonight, and yet we really don't know what the various outcomes of the various events of Thursday will be. Yeah, and you're not going to be chased by a bear in Jackson Hole. We do know that, which I think uh, probably is somewhat of a relief for you, but very much the focus is going to be on Jay Powell. And Chris, I'm wondering, from an equity perspective, is there out, uh, perhaps outsized risk that we could see equity response that is more than any response we could see in bonds to something that Jay Powell says? There's always that possibility that there's always that opportunity. One of the things when, when we got the minutes uh, a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't, wasn't as uber dovish as a lot of people thought. And for a hot minute, we pulled back. I, I don't know, Jay Powell's gonna talk about inflation, but we've been talking about inflation for the last 10 years. And the issue that I have is we flooded the market with liquidity in the United States globally. It was really hard to go belly up or to go bankrupt. You had too much capacity. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking about the lack of inflation is a creative destructive process never reached its natural end. We're doing it again. But I just I hear a lot of things about inflation. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Christopher Harvey, thank you so much with Wells Fargo. Salesforce.com entering the Dow. Alicia Levine joins. She's the BNY Mellon. We're thrilled she could be with us today. Alicia, the last time we spoke, I believe you had a more conservative tack, a more caution to the equity markets. Do you sustain that? So, hi, good morning. Nice to see you guys again. I mean, look, I think that the pace at which we're, we're rising is a little bit concerning for future gains from here. But overall, there's so much support in the market, not just from the Fed, but also the flows year to date where five to one flows have been going into the bond market and not equities. And also the fact that nearly $5 trillion on the sidelines sitting in cash. And so all this suggests there's still dry powder, <clears throat> even, even with the pace at which we've moved higher. So yes, I'm cautious. We're just going into that season, you know, that seasonal sort of weakness, that September, October, yeah. where, <clears throat> you know, Gains tend to be consolidated. There'll be some election angst, I'm sure. And and there'll be some COVID angst on the vaccine or treatment front. It's never a straight line. Alicia, so, you know, it, 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 
it feels like, it, you know, we could pause, but ultimately I'm still positive the direction of travel is upward. Which ratio is your key valuation metric right now? Is it price to sales? Are we rationalizing like Amazon or is it price to cash flow? Is it something like across to the balance sheet, total enterprise value to EBITDA? Which is the ratio that matters to Alicia Levine? So I think that's a great, great question. Uh, you know, I've been talking to people who've been in the market for 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the last few days. No one's actually seen anything like this. Um, it, it's kind of extraordinary. I'd say right now it's really cash. Um, cash is king. And, you know, the ability to plow back into the business. And, you know, clearly, I mean, I'm just giving you a metric. <clears throat> Every night we calculate the outperformance of the five large cap tech stocks versus the rest of the S&P. We started this in April. The outperformance was 28% in the middle of April. Do you know, as of the market closed yesterday, the outperformance of those five stocks is now 60%, over the rest of the S&P. And the reason is the cash generation, the earnings power, the cash generation. They don't need debt. And they keep on growing. And it's not entirely irrational. It's not irrational. They are growing. And they are growing faster. Well, and they are growing and it isn't irrational. So if you want to get cautious, what do you sell? (laughs) That's great. Look, I think that for the most part, given how how levered the market is to the to the to the tech sector and the communication sector right now. You have to have some exposure here. I think I think the general idea of trimming some of your winners and rebalancing is a great idea. We do believe that there will be a credible vaccine out there somewhere in the next four to six months, which will blunt some of the macro concerns that you've talked about in the previous segment. There will be something available, we're pretty sure, by the first quarter of 2021. And so, therefore, your industrial stocks, your housing stocks, and even your epicenter stocks could look appealing in that scenario. Alicia, I'm struggling, though, with the idea of the Robin Hood narrative, the idea that, yes, you've got the fan mag stocks that have some uh, uh, understandability behind their rise. Tesla gaining 415 percent. Are there pockets of froth here? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, there are certain names you, you, you can't explain. And, um, and I think that's that's one of them. Um, you know, there is a momentum going. I mean, let's just for Tesla just for one second was the largest short in the market. And it was the largest short, not on the, not only on the institutional side, but also on the retail side. So part of that price action, it, it was that technical there. But um, clearly, you know, we we joked about this last time. Parabolas mm-hmm. do not make great technical charts, and well, oh. there'll be a day, but it can go on <laughs> yeah. longer. Okay, folks, what you got to understand here is Alicia Levine is prodigious in math, so we're going to do math Thursday here in this long hour. What do I mean by a long hour? We start out at 8 a.m. Wall Street time, and we're really going to 9:10, which is a speech of Chairman uh, Powell. We've got some special coverage on that we'll tell you about here uh, in a moment. Alicia, uh, come on, Alicia, you're going all squared on me here with the parabola, and that comes back to gamma or convexity, the bet that's on there. Is there a market overweight right now? I mean, everybody's telling me there's money on the sidelines, but is there room there for gamma, for acceleration? There's there's room for other sectors to move and not have tech destroyed because you don't have to sell tech to buy the other sectors, right? Because there's cash. You've got $5 trillion of cash on the sidelines and so much money has gone into the bond market. And it'll be very, let's bring in Jay Powell. You know, this is the big story for the morning. 
you know, what are we going to hear today? And they're going to sit (laughs) on rates even as we see inflation moving upward. Alicia, you've done a great job answering Tom's gratuitous way of getting gamma in there. Really, Tom? Seriously, she's not even focusing on the technical as much. Come on. on. Alicia (laughs) Rudder, Shelton Natenberg. I mentioned Shelton Natenberg, folks, yesterday. I got a huge response to that from geeks on uh, Wall Street. Mr. Natenberg came out of Chicago years ago with a definitive one volume on the Greek letters. It's read like the Old (laughs) Testament on, on Wall Street. As well, uh, Alicia, where, where's the Greek letters here right now? I mean, there's a whole bunch of Greek letters. Which of those matters to Alicia, Alicia Levine? So, so what matters to me right now is is the positive rate of change, right? So the second derivative. Yep. That's what matters to me right now. And that's what matters to markets. And we forget that at our peril. It's never the absolute level. It is the rate of change. And every time investors forget that, they're on the wrong side of the trade. And the reason the market's moving upward is because the rate of change continues to be positive. Here in the U.S., the data has been getting better in the last few weeks. It is coinciding with COVID cases, essentially rolling over on that bell curve, very similar to what we saw in April Will they stay there? Hard to say. But the data have gotten better and the positive surprises have been there. And that is why the market can continue to move higher. It's the rate of change. Newtonian mechanics with Alicia Levine. It doesn't get better than that with BNY Mellon. They're back at BNY Mellon. The general counsel is going, what did she say? (laughs) Alicia Levine uh, with us this morning. Thank you. Right now, we're thrilled to bring you Megan Green. She's at Harvard Kennedy School, a senior fellow, and has just done brilliant work folding market economics and acute analysis into the broader theory of what we're doing in economics and, of course, how it links into finance and investment as well. Megan Green, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Megan, I really want to go to the arch issue, which has been the battle of our textbooks, rules and discretion in this new, more surgical idea of targeting Is there any proof that a central bank can target anything? (laughs) Well, there's there's more and more proof that a central bank can't target much of anything. They can target the rate that they're setting. Um, But the Fed's dual mandate is full employment and stable inflation of 2%. And on the latter inflation, you know, the Fed's missed the mark for the entire past recovery. Um, In fact, since the Fed adopted a 2%, inflation target in 2012, inflation has averaged just under one and a half percent. So when Jay Powell does get up and it's widely expected that he'll uh, provide the broad brushstrokes of a change in the Fed's target towards average inflation so that there's a catch up factor, meaning that the Fed will overshoot on inflation to offset undershooting for so long. I do think investors might ask, you know, can the Fed overshoot on inflation? It's been so far under its target for so long. There's a real credibility issue. And the Fed has to promise that it will overshoot on inflation in the future, which requires upfront credibility when it hasn't really built any. How do you mechanically or what is the reaction process that gets you to overshoot inflation? I mean, if the Fed really wanted to overshoot on inflation, it could provide helicopter money and and achieve it, I think. But within kind of the political feasibility of what the Fed can do these days, I don't think there's a whole lot that the Fed can do to even hit its target, particularly now when we're facing 
a huge and persistent drop in demand. So I don't think the Fed can generate inflation of over 2% right now. There are concerns, though, that the supply side aspect of this crisis will come through and generate some inflation. So the Fed might get lucky for a little while and have inflation overshoot its 2% target, but I doubt that will be sustained. Megan, we can't get good inflation unless we get more jobs back. And not all job losses are equal. Initially, people were saying that they were temporary job losses. Now they're increasingly permanent. They're increasingly high paid. And I am unclear on what the Fed can do to improve this picture. Are Fed actions at this point actually hurting more than they're helping because they take the pressure off Washington? Yeah, so I I think you're right. The Fed can't do much about the job market right now other than keep rates really low, try to run the economy hot to bring in workers, um, which, by the way, the Fed was already trying to do during the last recovery. Um, I think it's really up to fiscal authorities to do something to try to address the labor market. So it's not up to the Fed, though. I do think that when Jay speaks later today, he will probably provide a slightly bearish view on the economy so that he can keep the pressure on Congress. And I suspect he'll mention that fiscal policy is the most important thing right now, as he has been doing. But when we talk about inflation, Megan, we're getting plenty of inflation in asset prices. And I do wonder uh, whether at a certain point it becomes harmful without some sort of fiscal backdrop, without some sort of help that actually can help the actual economy. Do you see the asset inflation as being pernicious at this point or does it have more room to run before it reaches that? I think it probably has more room to run. It depends on what markets you're talking about, right? We've seen incredible leverage taken on during this crisis, and that'll be a problem one day, but it won't be a problem as long as debt servicing costs are so incredibly low because rates are so low. The stock market looks frothy. I don't think anyone would doubt that, but I think that as long as the Fed is stuck in, um, even without an average inflation target, we all know that the Fed's not gonna hike rates anytime soon. Um, I think that that has a bit further to run. Megan, I wanna play off Jared Kushner now over at the Death Star talking about the president's speech tonight. And, you know, Megan, I wanna talk about a hopeful America. Mr. Kushner says the president will speak of a quote, hopeful unquote, America. How does Jay Powell do that? How does he generate a hopeful message today when I've got a number of leading economists looking at double-digit unemployment coming down slowly. Yeah, I think it will be hard to do and is probably not really in Jay's best interest since, as I said, he'll want to keep the pressure on Congress to come up with a fiscal stimulus, which probably won't happen until September at best at this point. Um, but I, you know, I think you could look to some data points like retail sales, durable goods, which improved. Um, the problem is that all the kind of high frequency alternative data sources suggest that this recovery is already petering out. And I think it could could turn into a downturn if we don't end up re-upping right. some of the fiscal stimulus. Megan Green, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With the Kennedy School at Harvard. We're so fortunate here to have Mike Darda join us. Uh, Mike Darda is MKM Partners Chief Economist and Market Strategist. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, the comments we just heard from Fed Chairman Powell. Absolutely. So thanks for having me on. I think, you know, going through the whole speech, the the key phraseology here, and, and a lot of this was, you know, widely anticipated, but Powell basically stated specifically in the speech that they're moving to a flexible form of average inflation targeting. So basically what that means is the Fed wants to shoot for a 2% inflation goal. The problem in the last cycle was that they undershot it. And there was no makeup strategy for that undershooting. 
So this time around, the Fed wants to be focused on if they're undershooting to, you know, to make up for that with some overshooting to, you know, to a limited extent, right? He also said in the in his formal remarks that if inflation were to start to get going too much, that they would not hesitate to act, to tighten policy and to, to bring inflation back down. But the basic point here is to average to an average 2% inflation over time. Uh, and so 2% will not be a ceiling but really a flexible average inflation goal. Michael Darda, thrilled to have you on. You're just the right guy to have on here uh, at this moment in Fed history. What I find fascinating is the ex-ante feel here to this. If they're going to inflation target and overshoot, are they going to be reactive to the overshoot, or is it implied in the speech that they will be proactive and get out front to push inflation higher? Well, I, I think, Tom, the idea is to be, you know, to be proactive here. So one of the things that happened towards the tail end of the last business cycle is that the Fed was <clears throat> tested, right? You had a lot of people saying, well, the Fed's going to run it hot. And we had a test in the last two years of the last cycle where fiscal policy eased. Inflation was mostly below the Fed's target. Um, and the labor market was tight. What did the Fed do? They actually tightened policy for two years, even though inflation was below their target mm-hmm. most of the mm-hmm. time. And so the Fed was basically acting the way that prior Feds acted, moving in a way to head off any inflation above 2%. Well, it turned out that the tight labor market really didn't uh, put any significant upward pressure mm-hmm. on inflation, that growth was slowing, and that you know recession risks were actually starting yeah, well, to mount, which is why the Fed had to reverse course and start cutting rates. That inverted yield curve, Tom, told us something. You know, we discussed this many times. A lot of economists ignored it, said it was irrelevant, uh, but it both predicted right. a slowdown <clears throat> and eventual rate cuts. Okay, we're so gonna, Paul Sweeney, I promise we're not going <laughs> to turn this into a historical clinic. But I'm going to go back, Michael Darda, to Richard Timberlake and the Georgia School. Good morning, Robert McTeer. In the great one volume, Monetary Policy in the U.S. and Intellectual and Institutional History. That's great, but is all this theory overwhelmed by the dynamics of aggregate demand and that you can you can use the monetary toolkit until it doesn't respond to aggregate demand dynamics well i think that's that's exactly right tom i mean how does inflation move up and and move down and and what is the fed actually doing you know they have to be able to stimulate aggregate demand to get inflation to move up they have to be able to retard precisely thank you inflation to move down, right? And so they do that essentially with two different policy tools. They can buy or sell bonds to ease or tighten, or they can target an interest rate, a short-term rate, or there's some discussion now about moving out to a longer-term interest rate. So that's what the central bank does, and I think that's important to reflect on now that there's a lot of discussion and pressure on the Fed to add additional mandates. But I think we've got to be very careful Uh, in not asking the Fed to do too much. If its one goal was basically not achieved in the last cycle, 2% inflation, is it really a good idea to be lopping on additional mandates that the Fed does not have the tools for? And I think the answer to that is no, we need to be very careful, right? If we're asking, 
you know, if if we as a society are saying right. you know, we have a pressing need to address climate change or disparities between groups, that's going to be a, a policy that fiscal, you know, that that elected right. officials with a fiscal policy apparatus are going to have to de- uh, address. Monetary policy, mm. I think, you know, we're, we're all fired to up. Do, <laughs> I mean, to do too much if we're going to add mandate after mandate after mandate. Oh, Paul, this Phenomenal is like... Phenomenal growth and in inflation. Listen, you won't even let me cut in here. Control. See how Darna just goes on like that? <laughs> yep. Michael and I are just fired up, folks. This is like Bloomberg on the economy. Redux as well. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene with Michael Darda. We are thrilled Michael Darda is with us with a Dow up. 114 points. Okay, I have one more geek question, and then Sweeney's going to get control of the program. Michael Darda, <laughs> the Dallas Fed had that symposium for John B. Taylor of Stanford, I'm going to guess eight years ago, and it was the rules based. Uh, Lipsky spoke. Everybody weighed in here on rules. Did Jerome right. Powell state a new form of rule today? Uh, he he did, but like I said in the opening, you know, his phraseology was a flexible form of average inflation targeting. You know, so an inflexible approach would be to shift to a you know explicit numerical target or something like a price level target target where the Fed was you know explicitly committed to to make up um, do you know a precise magnitude of undershoot or to reverse an overshoot and that and that's not um, what happened today with the Powell speech. All right, Mike. So from a practical perspective, what do you expect the change for? the Fed as over the next several quarters, if anything, in terms of how they're viewing the rate structure and the economy? Yeah, great question. So I I think one change is going to be less confidence in these Phillips curve relationships, right? We discussed the Fed tightening policy when the labor market got, you know, quite tight uh, in the last few years of the previous expansion. And they did that because these Phillips curve models were more or less saying, okay, labor market's tightening. And so there's less capacity out there, less, you know, less room to run. And so that'll put upward pressure on inflation. It was not anticipated that we would get to 50 year lows in the unemployment rate with inflation still below the Fed's target. So when I read the Powell speech, that's what comes through loud and clear that there's going to be less focus on, you know, on on the tight labor market necessarily generating, you know, uh, a lot of pressure on inflation or even meaningful pressure on inflation. So Michael Darden, Chairman Chairman Powell answering questions now uh, as they do at at the Fed, and that's fine. One of the headline questions goes to the heart of the matter. It's a Walter Heller moment. Any inflation overshoot will be moderate, comma, not permanent. Says who, Michael Darda? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, listen, um, you know, we could end up fighting the last war here, and by trying to make up for lost ground on inflation, it could be that there's an overheating and a rise in inflation down the road, not a near-term risk, but down the road. Um, you know, that's more than Fed officials are bargaining for or anticipating. And and so that, you know, that is a risk. It's and forth on before, which would be total aggregate demand. So nominal GDP, this is a favorite metric of Tom Keene, total spending in the economy. It was very moderate uh, in the last cycle, averaging just 4% per annum. So if real growth potential is around two, you're not going to get you know, inflation you know, much above two. 
Um, and so really what the Fed would need to do here would be to set a path for aggregate demand, nominal GDP, to, to, to move up in a way, to run it away relative to growth potential that would get inflation to 2%. Now, we're, you know, we're, we're a depressed economy because we just got hit with this shock. So aggregate demand is going to have to run much faster than the growth rate of potential for a full recovery to take shape. But once that happens, then yeah, nominal yeah. growth will have to be adequate good enough to generate at least 2% in inflation. Right. And with growth potential around 2, maybe a little below 2, that'll be okay. you know, at least 4% nominal GDP. Let's go to the reality, Michael Darda. One final question. You've been wonderful. How urgent is it that Chairman Powell get a stimulus package from the White House, from the Senate, from the House? You know, it's a fascinating question, Tom. I mean, we've been telling clients, basically, you've got three variables to account for here, an unanticipated fiscal shock, an unanticipated monetary shock, and then the evolution of the pandemic itself. Mike Dart is MKM Partners, Chief Economist and Market Strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.